It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. There are only a few things Colorado lawmakers have to do each year. The biggest is passing a balanced budget. They have some help this session thanks to a revenue surplus. The current plan is up for a final vote today in the Senate. It spends the new money on schools, roads, and the state pension fund. CPR's Sam Brash is here to break it all down. Welcome, Sam. Glad to be here. Colorado's economy has been surging over the last few years. Is that why lawmakers have more money to work with? That's a really big part of it, but it's not all of it. Uh, State economists predict Colorado will have a $1.3 billion surplus to spend this year. A lot of that is about economic growth, but the federal tax overhaul is also playing a big role. Um, What it did is it got rid of some federal deductions, and this is kind of complicated, but that increased the amount of income the state could tax. So they actually have more money coming in as a root you know, as a result of that tax cut. So how does the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights fit into all this? I mean, doesn't that limit how much money lawmakers can spend before they have to send money back to the people? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tabor sets a revenue cap that should trigger refunds. But all this new revenue doesn't quite reach that ceiling. So a lot of the reason for that is a compromise last year on a fee hospitals pay to the state. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. the hospital provider fee. I remember this. Remind me what that did. Right. So that's a, one of our favorites here at CPR. And what happened was the fee was recategorized, and that created more room beneath the Tabor cap. It basically made it possible for the state to collect a lot more general tax revenue before they have to give any of it back to taxpayers. And that means taxpayers won't get a rebate. So they're not going to get a rebate. Uh, but let's actually dig into this budget. One big fight of the Capitol this year has been over transportation uh, and how to pay for fixing Colorado's road uh, roads and bridges. What does the budget do on that front? Absolutely. I mean, this has been the really big marquee issue this year. And the original budget set aside half a billion dollars for transportation. Now that's in line with a Senate bill. And what it would do is it's one-off spending um, to buy time for a citizen initiative on transportation. So they would spend half a billion on road projects that are the most immediate concern. And then they're going to go to voters in November and ask them for a sales tax increase. Uh, for roads and bridges. Um, Republicans have wanted to see even more money, and Democrats have said there are lots of other needs around the states, the big one being education. Well, what about education? Does the budget put any of this new money into schools? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it puts $80 million into forestalling tuition hikes at Colorado universities. And the big one is it puts $150 million towards K-12 schools. That's about um, a $5 increase per pupil, um, according to the education news website Chalkbeat. And that also buys down this thing called the negative factor or the budget stabilization factor, BS factor uh, for short. All those all those terms basically signify this idea that there's a constitutional requirement for how much we have to spend per student on K-12 education. um, And we haven't been meeting that since the Great Recession. So this buys down that gap. So we should probably talk about PARA. That's the Public Employees Retirement Association. Um, I know that's been a point of debate at the Capitol this year. What does the budget have to do with PARA? So it sets aside $225 million for PARA. And what that means depends on another bill that's still up for debate. Um, And it's a Senate measure, and it would increase contributions from workers and taxpayers. And the idea there is to buy down yet another gap. Um, This one is worth uh, between $32 billion and $50 billion. And that's the gap between what PARA is expected to bring in in terms of revenue and its um, liabilities going into the future. Future. That could have some consequences in, in how you know bonding agencies look at Colorado's debt, stuff like that. It's pretty important, and um, this money would help down pay down that gap too. 
it, it sounds like this uh, a little extra money uh, here has helped lawmakers forge compromises. Uh, have you seen any disagreements? Yeah, there, there's lots of disagreements. One really interesting one is over uh, state prisons, particularly private prisons. Um, so the Department of Corrections is predicting some level of overcrowding, and it wants to contract a private prison to you know pay for about 250 beds. And Governor Hagenluber has backed up that request. He supports the Department of Corrections, but lawmakers from both parties rejected that when they wrote the budget, and they they actually wanted new funding in favor of like halfway houses. Um, and another really interesting disagreement is over the state film incentive. And that's meant to attract movie and TV productions to Colorado. Uh, I know it's long been in political limbo. What's happening this year with that? Yeah, it really has been in political limbo for a long time. Uh, the film incentive has gone from $5 million just a few years ago to just $750,000 today. And uh, when the Democrats in the House, they're in control of the House. So when the House debated the budget, they actually cut away that remaining money. They, they stripped it out entirely in favor of affordable housing and some construction regulation. Um, The incentive has a strong ally in the Senate, though. That's Republican Senate President Kevin Grantham. And he promised to stand up for it when the budget budget reached that chamber. I'll still stand up for the value of this film incentives, especially for Senate District 2. I'll cast the vote accordingly (laughs) with no expectations of, of winning in the end, honestly. But it turned out he had some reason to hope. So the Senate debated the budget last night and it restored the incentive to that $750,000 level. Now, it's not in the clear yet because the budget still has to go to a bipartisan committee, which will get the final say. I understand from your earlier coverage, Sam, that another thing lawmakers have been arguing over is whether to put more money into school security and having guards on campuses. Uh, that's a big issue since the shooting in Parkland, Florida. Where has that landed? So, yeah, that's been the the big kind of debate as this has moved through the amendment process in the House and the Senate. And the House decided to add $32 million for school security grants. And that money could be um, go, go towards school resource officers if a, a district so decided. And the Senate initially shot down a similar amendment to to add the same provision during their budget debate last night. But in the final hours, like at you know, 10.30 a.m., I look at Twitter, and in fact, they did pass it. Um, and one Democrat and the chamber's independent joins uh, joined a Republican in supporting that. Now, this is really unpopular among progressive Democrats. They worry more law enforcement officers, armed law enforcement officers, are, are going to leave kids feeling unsafe and also kind of feed kids into the uh, school-to-prison pipeline, particularly students of color. So there's there's big concern around that. But since it's gotten bipartisan support in both chambers, this has a pretty good chance of making it into the final budget. And, and just briefly, the Senate is expected to approve this budget with changes today. What happens next? So after this, the bill goes to this bipartisan po- conference committee. In this case, it'll probably be the Joint Budget Committee, which is bipartisan. They also are the ones who wrote the budget in the first place. So it kind of comes full circle, the circle of life there at the legislature. Um, and it ends up back in the same committee that wrote the bill. And then final passage uh, has to happen by next Friday the 13th. So sort of an ominous deadline that I'm sure lawmakers are, are really hoping to meet. Sam Brash covers the Capitol for CPR News. He joined us to talk about Colorado's next state budget. Researchers are watching this year's mountain snowpack. Important work as Colorado falls deeper into drought. They snowshoe and ski to high country sites where they look for something important, how much dust there is on the snow surface. Dust controls the rate of snow melt and spring runoff. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood filed this audio postcard. 
Snow collection has to start somewhere. For us, it begins on the side of Highway 40 with a trek up to Berthoud Pass. Well, hello, I'm Jeff Derry. I'm the director of Center for Snow and Avalanche Studies. And we operate the Colorado Dust on Snow program, or, or Kodos. Great. Yeah, and we're going to one of our Kodos sites now here at Berthoud Pass. From there, we start to ski up to one of 11 dust-on-snow study sites across the state. We're going to dig a snow pit and look for layers of dust. When you show people a picture of a dirty snow surface, it explains to them how a dark surface absorbs more solar radiation than a light-colored reflective surface. People grasp that intuitively. So maybe right here is our general sampling area. And Jeff Derry, like standing up here, I don't see any sort of trappings of this whole dust on snow thing that you're no. saying exists. This is how you like to see it right here. It's nice and white and fluffy. And the month of April is our highest dust on snow month. Which is unfortunate because you know, around April 1st is when we see maximum accumulation on the snowpack. If you get a dust event near the maximum accumulation point of the snowpack, that means it's on, near the surface of the snowpack and it's going to be a factor throughout the whole melt season. If we have people along on the trip, we offer them an opportunity to stay warm by digging if they should uh, start to get a chill. You just looked at me. <laughs> There's only one here. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let me know when you're ready to tap out. Okay. I think I already hit ground here. I, I noticed you sort of spiffing up the sides there. I noticed you like a nice, tidy little snow pit. Yeah, you got to yeah, have a clean face so you can see what you're looking at. You, you want the layers of the snow pack to pop out at you. So when, our, when my field assistant was out here last week, He believed he saw possibly some dust, I think maybe in this layer here, right near this melt-freeze crust. Do you see that? It's not popping out, not like other locations in Colorado that we're seeing right now. But it can start to show itself as the season progresses. And then we'll just note it and, re and report it the way we see it. So we're measuring some water equivalent directly. Most everybody, mainly water managers, are concerned with snow water equivalent of the snowpack. We work our way down in the column of the snow, collecting the snow in the tube, then we weigh that tube, and the direct output is inches of snow water equivalent. So in that column of snow I just took, there was almost an inch and a half of water. And that column of snow had two inches of water. Especially when we're done, we take a photo of everything. This year is an excellent case study. This is one for the record books. It's a great data point for us because the dust conditions are many places average or, or, or mild right now, but that can change. So just seeing how things evolve with such a shallow snowpack will really help us in the future understanding and predicting and hopefully eventually adapting to you know, changes in the snowpack. So we always fill our snow pits back in. Well, Jeff Derry, 
Uh, we didn't see any dust on snow today, but it's pretty clear that what you're doing is going to be important here in the coming months. Exactly. And we'll keep close tabs on it and let everybody know what we see. Well, I'm going to start my part and, and do some shoveling. Great. Well, thank you. Hey, here we go. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. This week, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, announced he would roll back emission standards for cars. Under current rules, cars and light trucks sold in the U.S. must average more than 50 miles a gallon by 2025. Here's some of what Pruitt said. This is another step in the president's regulatory agenda, deregulatory agenda. The importance of auto manufacturing in this country, the president again is saying America is going to be put first. Well, it's not clear what the new emission limits will be. Will Tor of the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, or SWEEP, says any changes will hurt Coloradans' pocketbooks and hurt their air quality. He joins me from Boulder. Welcome. Uh, good morning. So the standards the administration wants to throw out were agreed upon in 2012. Had they started to make a difference in what Coloradans drive? Yes, the standards have certainly been making a difference. We've been seeing that the average fuel economy of vehicles has been going up every year so that consumers have been saving at the gas pump. The estimates by the Union of Concerned Scientists suggest that Colorado consumers have already saved $550 million due to these standards. And the decision to roll back auto emission standards appears to be a big win for U.S. automakers who pressured the president to address the issue days after he took office. Pruitt essentially says manufacturers weren't going to be able to meet these standards and that they'd raise costs on consumers, particularly, he said, on low-income consumers. Uh, won't this make it cheaper for people to buy a new car? So this will actually cost consumers uh, significantly. If you look at an analysis that's been done, it suggests that by 2025, with the standards in place, it might cost between $600 and $1,000 more on average to buy a car, but you'll be saving close to $5,000 over the lifetime of that car in gasoline costs. And because the vast majority of people who buy a new car finance that vehicle, you know, they don't pay cash, and the ones who do pay cash are probably not your low-income consumers. For folks who are financing a vehicle, from day one, the savings on fuel will be larger than the increase to their financing costs. So, in fact, the decision that the EPA is making will cost consumers significantly. It's also, I think, important to recognize that the auto administration, or I'm sorry, the auto industry is somewhat split on this matter. It is true that the Association of Auto Manufacturers and the Global Auto Manufacturers Association have been lobbying the Trump administration. But there are a lot of individual automakers who are realizing that this is a big mistake. Bill Ford came out with an interview last week saying that Ford does not support a rollback of fuel economy and greenhouse gas emission standards. Honda has opposed it. All of the major auto parts manufacturers in the, in the country, their associations have opposed it. It actually creates enormous uncertainty for the auto industry and it's one of those things where, you know, when the dog actually catches a car, it can be a problem. I think the auto industry is going to be very unhappy with what they've unleashed with the Trump administration. 
We spoke to Amy Oliver Cook, who specializes in energy at the Independent Institute. That's a free market think tank in Denver. She says that automakers will continue to innovate and will continue to make cleaner, more fuel efficient cars if the market demands. I always find it interesting that somehow government getting out of the way of a market is going to be environmentally disastrous. I would wholly disagree with that. So get government out of the way and let R&D, let manufacturers and let uh, the market do what it does best, which is innovate. And likely what you're going to get is cleaner air, not worse, cleaner air. If you let the market do its job. Could you imagine car companies competing, maybe running ads saying our new car is cleaner than theirs? Well, I think that's actually fairly silly if you look at the history of the auto industry. When it came to clean air, the auto industry did not start making major innovations to clean the air until the Clean Air Act forced them to. If you look at the period from the mid-80s until about 2009, fuel economy was stagnant in the United States. So for a 25-year period, fuel economy went from an average of about 20 miles per gallon to about 22 miles per gallon. It wasn't until these standards were adopted that we started seeing automakers really focusing on improving fuel economy. So the record suggests that that's just not how the industry actually works. The industry is filled with smart engineers, and when you send them the right signals through regulation, they they innovate, they invest in cleaner vehicles. That's exactly what's happening today. If you take away those regulatory requirements, the likelihood of that continuing, certainly at the same pace and scale, I believe is minuscule. So are you saying consumers' wishes just aren't strong enough in the face of, of, of environmental concerns? I think it's more that the choices that, are, that will be available to consumers will be much narrower. So if you look, for instance, at the period uh, before the, the current national standards were adopted, you had a number of states that had their own standards, um, states of uh, California and some of the West Coast states, a number of states in the Northeast, actually representing nearly 40% of the U.S. population, had their own standards. And what you saw was that in those states, there was far more consumer choice. That in those states, the automakers sold cleaner vehicles. Um, Even today, where those states have certain requirements to sell more electric vehicles, there are more than twice as many models available for sale in those states than there are in a state like Colorado. So without these standards, you actually see far less consumer choice. Well, what do you make of the claim that manufacturers just aren't going to be able to meet the deadline of these standards? Well, again, that, that's simply a silly claim. Last year, the, you know, prior to the new administration, the EPA engaged in a significant midterm review of the standards. And when you look at that analysis, it was filled with peer-reviewed studies. The National Academy of Sciences did a, a major companion analysis The Air Resources Board in California did a major companion analysis. All of them came to the conclusion that, in fact, it is easier to meet the standards than we originally believed because technical innovation has happened substantially faster than folks anticipated. If you look at the the redone midterm review that 
Scott Pruitt just released, it reads more like an auto industry set of talking points than a true review. There's no independent peer-reviewed science in there. There is no information that actually suggests that the previous midterm review was incorrect. It, it was simply a regurgitation of industry talking points. All of the science and all of the real analysis that's been done says it's actually easier to meet the standards than we originally anticipated and cheaper to meet the standards. So let's talk about this environmental impact uh, to Colorado if the current standards are rolled back. Uh, would the state's air quality change? It would actually be an enormous impact. If you think about the uh, Governor Hickenlooper's executive order on clean energy and climate last year, the centerpiece of it is a plan to significantly clean up electricity generation in the state with Excel Energy planning to close two additional coal-fired power plants and replace them with about 1,600 megawatts of wind and solar. If you look at the reductions in emissions associated with that, it's about 4 million tons per year. If you look at the additional emissions of greenhouse gases that we would see due to rolling back these standards, assuming they roll them back to 2020 levels, which I think is a likely outcome, we don't know for sure, uh, you'll see emissions go up by about 4 million tons a year. So it essentially would wipe out all of the emissions reductions that we are seeing from the major uh, improvements in electricity generation in the state. So I, I want to talk about uh, something finally, this, this real test that's going to be coming, uh, whether one state in particular, California, will be able to keep its own emission standards. Twelve other states have basically adopted California's stricter limits. Colorado is not one of them. Briefly, would you like to see state-level action here if these uh, emissions uh, continue? So one of the strongest things that a state can do is to adopt the advanced clean car standards that 13 other states have adopted to date. And Colorado does have the legal authority to do that. I do think that the, the state should take a good hard look at that and should evaluate it on its merits. It would certainly allow Colorado to continue to have the benefits to consumers, the benefits to clean air, and the benefits to our climate that the current federal standards are giving us. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks, Nathan. Will Torres with Sweep, the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project based in Boulder. Well, the latest car models are now on display at the annual Denver Auto Show. It kicked off last night at the Colorado Convention Center, where visitors can check out cars from the world's biggest automakers. And a major theme at the show this year is trying to win over younger drivers to the point that brands are designing cars with features they think millennials will like. That includes Toyota, which is showcasing its new vehicle in Denver, the 2019 Toyota Avalon XSE. David Lee is a rep for Toyota and described to us some of these millennial-targeted features. We kind of have an Avalon now that appeals to a broader range of people, and we are hoping at Toyota that that will bring us younger buyers. So we'll have Apple CarPlay on Avalon now, uh, which will allow you to mirror your phone on your dashboard. Uh, Android is under review, uh, and, and we're hoping that we'll have some announcements on that down the road. Alexa will also be present there. And so with Alexa, you can... If you're in your car, uh, turn on and off devices at your house that are Alexa compatible. Or if you're in your house, you can get your car to remote start itself or lock and unlock doors and that sort of thing. So we're trying to raise the bar on our electronics connectivity quite a bit. And we think that that will also help attract uh, younger buyers to the family. 
Volvo has a similar idea this year with its new SUV, the XC40. And with this model, the Swedish manufacturer seems to think millennials want to let the car do the driving. The semi-autonomous driving is really nice. You can get in the car and pretty much uh, touch the wheel every 30 seconds and drive the bail. That's car dealer Jack Terhar. He says the 2019 Volvo XC40 is the first car the brand has made specifically for the millennial generation. Millennials are starting to get a little bit older. Um, And as millennials are getting older, they're moving in the luxury car market. And they have a different sense of style with cars. And they want something more unique. And they like something that's practical. And Subaru is trying to make a name for itself in the SUV market by debuting its largest vehicle yet. The Subaru Ascent seats eight people. Don Hicks is a dealer with Shortline Auto and describes some of the features the new SUV has to offer. You can configure it with a second row with uh, captain's chairs, which is awfully nice. So you can have walkthrough so mom can get back there and discipline those kids in the back seat if she needs to. It's got the performance. It's got the emissions that everybody's looking for. Just looking at the size of the vehicle and everything, I, I'm going to say it's going to be very fuel efficient. That's, that's one of Subaru's uh, big strengths is fuel efficiency. So this, this too will be very fuel efficient. As Hicks said, Subaru continues to tout fuel efficiency and low gas mileage, even as the Trump administration is attempting to free automakers of new mileage standards. The Denver Auto Show runs through the weekend at the Colorado Convention Center. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Stories told by veterans inspired Jeff Campbell to write his latest play, Honorable Disorder, is about a soldier returning to civilian life after war and how complex and trying that experience can be. Campbell premieres his play in Denver tomorrow. The show also marks the debut of Campbell's Emancipation Theater Company. Jeff, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks, Nathan. Two years ago, you worked for a nonprofit in Georgia that helps veterans get their benefits and other things like housing. Uh, for this job, you had to interview veterans. Uh, what was one of the stories you heard from a vet that really just stuck in your mind? One of the stories that I heard was they were in the middle of exchanging fire with um, insurgents. This was in Iraq. And he saw a what he thought was about a 13-year-old that was struggling to get a rocket launcher onto his shoulder. And he had to contemplate whether or not to defend himself or whether or not this 13-year-old was going to be able to operate this big piece of machinery. And I just can't imagine standing there looking at a young boy struggling to put a, a rocket launcher on his shoulder, let alone contemplating, you know, having to, you know... To take that child's life, possibly. Exactly. Did you hear that a lot, these commonalities between what veterans told you about coming home and having that type of situation remain in their heads? Right. Not only was the deployment, you know, disturbing stories, but reintegrating into civilian life and not having access to their benefits or information just just the simple information of how to access their benefits. Like, well, where do I go? Who do I talk to? What number do I call? Absolutely. Just was was uh, disheartening, especially when you, you know, recognize that veterans are disproportionately uh, represented, you know, at the bottom, you know, struggling. 
Had you ever worked with veterans before? I never have. I, you know, have friends that were veterans and who had spoken to me about PTSD. And I have uh, I have family that's, you know, in the military, but I had never um, really gotten an in-depth understanding of their their difficulties until this this job. So so why write about veterans? Why do this play based uh, uh, s- squarely on veterans? We have to transform the dialogue among veterans. Um, they are they are a marginalized group comprised of marginalized groups. Eleven um, percent of them are uh, from a immigrant background. Nineteen percent of them are people of color. Twenty uh, percent of them are women. Um, you know, seven percent LGBTQ, um, the, the low income. So th- we have to. If we want to really create equality in this country, let's start there with the people who put their lives on the line to defend what we in the narrative, what we hear in the narrative of defending uh, our democracy and uh, the national interests. Well, let's start there. Are they equal? And and the people and the communities that they come from, you know, are we are we looking at them in the same way that we look at everybody else? I want to talk about your new play, Honorable Disorder. It follows Deshaun Foster, an Iraq vet who has just returned to Denver after his deployment. He's struggling with PTSD. He has hallucinations of his commanding officer who died in combat and someone Deshaun looked up to. What's his relationship like with his family when he gets back to Colorado? Well, he's struggling. Um, and this is something that I that I also heard from the veterans and was greatly inspired by um that their relatives don't even have any idea of what they're really struggling with. I play his uncle who just doesn't just doesn't get it. And then his mom who just loves him is played by a uh, blues legend Eric Brown. Uh she's just doing her best for her son and and she just has the empathy and you know that a mother has, the the love that a mother has. And so his relationship to his his family is, you know, he loves his family, but they just don't get it. And so he tries to cope with his problems on his own. Right. And and I, I, I bet you've heard that from other veterans that they just I got to deal with this myself because I can't rely on my family or friends. Exactly. Um, and that's where the organization that I work for, you know, it, it came in to navigate them through the red tape and the bureaucracy and that. That was really helpful. They were really appreciative that we were a resource center for all things veterans. And so, yeah, a lot of them are just, you know, they just say, hey, I'm better. I'm a survivalist. I'm better off just figuring this whole thing out myself. And that's why they wind up, you know, disproportionately on the streets. It sounds like this play could be placed anywhere. Uh, These are common themes found across the country. Why set the play in Denver? And in particular, five points. Right. I decided to come back home. I I knew that I wanted to come back home, and my vocation was to write uh, plays and to produce theater in town, in in my hometown and in my uh, neighborhood. And I wanted to base it uh, in five points. So when I returned, you know, I saw the change of the the rising housing market. And I saw the change happening before I left, but to be gone a year. And then to come back and see the progress, you know, after an entire year, 
I was I wanted to really tell that story because uh, gentrification um, and the rising housing market, the opioid crisis and homelessness and veteran issues are not isolated issues. They're all connected um, because the folks on the bottom, you know, are disproportionately affected the most by, you know, um, the change that's happening. And so I wanted to be able to tell that story as well. I was just as moved by that as I was by the experience in Georgia. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Denver playwright Jeff Campbell. His new theater company debuts his play Honorable Disorder tomorrow. I want to talk about uh, a character named Samantha Stewart. She's a social worker, and, and you said she has this savior complex. What do you mean by that? Well, right. Well, uh, oftentimes folks come from uh, outside of the community and they feel like they've got all the answers. And if they just show up and provide their services and their knowledge and, and their clinician background, that they can fix or solve problems, like I said, you know, that are very complex and compounded, you know. Um, and so I really wanted to... Uh, Really, sometimes you have to tell allies how they can help rather than them uh, coming in and saying, well, I've got all the answers and I know what's wrong with this community or whatever. So I really wanted to, you know, put that in there, too. You have a decades long career in hip hop music and in the hip hop culture. Why not tell this story through music? Why do it on the stage? Well, storytelling, well, the beautiful thing about theater is that you can bring music, you can bring art through the set design, visual art, you can bring uh, poetry through the monologues, you can bring dance if you, if, if you prefer, you can bring all of the different uh, mediums into one production, one product, and and really get down, man. You could really express yourself that way. And I and I want. I'm artsy. I'm a little yeah. too artsy for <laughs> for just one thing. So I wanted to put it all in in one. And, and let, you know, why start your own theater company? Well, um, Denver in the in the greater theater landscape of the community, Denver has some amazing uh, theater companies out there. Uh, El Centro Su Teatro, uh, Vintage Theater. Uh, Buntport, Curious, and others. And there needs to be a black theater uh, putting black actors on stage intentionally to tell stories from an authentic cultural experience. Now, and there is the Source Theater Company, right, that does uh, African-American shows. And- they are, and they are excellent, and I, and I love what they do. The context of where I want to come from is not um, a, from a nonprofit perspective, but rather from a for-profit perspective and align myself with people doing great work on the grassroots level and empower them by yeah. highlighting the work that they do and discussing their issues through the dialogue. And so that's one of the things that I'm doing. And why name the theater the Emancipation Theater? Well, yeah. it was inspired off of the, the Marcus Garvey quote that was made famous by the Bob Marley song, Redemption songs, emancipate ourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free the mind. Um, And I feel like that once we are able to uh, tell our stories uh, without um, 
anyone else's um, agenda, then we are free. Then our voices are free. Then our our expression is free. And and so that's that's the context that I'm coming from. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Denver playwright Jeffrey Campbell, his new theater company, debuts his play Honorable Disorder. This weekend, it runs through the 29th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Stealth Ulvang has spent the last seven years performing with the band The Lumineers from Denver. That's taken him on a worldwide tour where he's played to hundreds of thousands of fans and shared the stage with U2 and the late Tom Petty. Still, the Fort Collins native somehow finds time to write and record his own music, and there's a lot of it. He's put out two records so far this year, and he'll release a third tomorrow called American Boredom. You boil feelings with cast iron kettles and leaves. And whittle birch trees with toothpicks that hang from your teeth You swat the diamonds and hide them in eyes that we see It's not the troubles that plague us but lives that we lead And, 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 and I, oh I wanted to tell you Stealth, welcome to Colorado Matters. Woo, thanks for having me, Nathan. <laughs> I love that song. It's great. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been playing with the Lumineers for seven years now. Yes. Uh, how did you initially get involved with them? Uh, this is a small little scene. They We, we were playing at uh, Meadowlark together at the open mic, and they actually reached out to me through MySpace and asking ideas of where to play. And MySpace, you're of... dating yourself a little bit there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, yeah, they found Neela through Craigslist, us through MySpace, so it's... Definitely. Very organic way band. to form a band through these, <laughs> these, these resources. For sure. How has playing with such a popular band shaped you as a musician? Uh, I, think, I think definitely uh, it, uh, somehow still I get more nervous playing my own stuff and playing to smaller crowds. But I can go into, when we were doing these U2 shows, for example, I felt uh, like just flawless of energy and, and unfazed. But then uh, playing a house show in Boulder last night, I like... Got the heebie-jeebies. I don't know what it is. So maybe it hasn't at all. Right. It uh, hasn't shaped you at all. But it was, is it because the music is more personal for you that you've written yourself because it's from your heart? Or? I think so, too. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's getting attached and seeing people's response to literal uh, lyrical changes or all these things and quite self-critical as we all can be. So Last year, the Lumineers went on tour with you, too, like you said, opened up for Tom Petty just months before his dad. Yeah. What was it like to share the stage with these musical legends? It's it's pretty incredible. Uh, I don't know if I would have gone to the shows had I not been playing them. And then I watched the – we did, I think, 15 shows with you, too, and I watched every single one yeah. all the way through. Uh, those guys are incredible. And Tom Petty as well. Uh, absolutely magical watching him play, so – well, you're a versatile musician yourself. Uh, you play accordion with the Lumineers, but you also play piano, guitar, a few woodwinds, I've been told. The list right. goes on. Yes. Give us a rough estimate. Uh, how many instruments have you learned to play? Uh, I think I mean, I've probably played 20 or so record, uh, on records, you know, where I'll be like, oh, I can I can play that. And then it's a lot of BSing. So, uh, what do you mean? So like... <laughs> uh, you, you can learn a part or slowly uh, kind of like learning learning to read and slowly learning to write and oh, you get the English language down and then I feel like all the instruments just connect and I would I would be now I feel like it's a fun challenge to 
throw an instrument at me that I couldn't piece together in some ways. So. Here, play this one, go, right? <laughs> what, what's an instrument that you're hoping to pick up next? Uh, I, I, I've been really trying to get good at uh, pedal steel. Um, oh, that's like the country music song. Do you yeah, hear those? Kind exactly. Of yeah. There's a guy in town, Adam Bomeister. He's like the only guy I know that, that plays one. I just talked to him the other night and he's like, oh, it's not so hard. Is it he's, hard? He's very basic. And I think that any pedal steel player is like, oh, it's it's easy. But I think it's the hardest. I'm pretty sure it's the hardest instrument to learn. There's like nine different facets of things moving knees and hands and uh, Simultaneously, right? and yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. 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 So. Do you think you're going to maybe integrate it into a future song, possibly? They, I play slide, that song that we were just listening to, a uh, song for Jack, I yeah. play it in that. But I'm not using the pedals. Just using the slide. That's it. Yeah. So slowly and surely, I'll start figuring out all the other foot parts. And get it onto an album, maybe. Yes. <laughs> in February, you released an EP called Greetings from Perpetual Summer. You recorded that in South Africa, where you've gained a bit of a following in, in Cape Town. Yeah. This is Tribute to Move. you first start playing in South Africa? Uh, Lumineers had a show down there. I met a guy basically backstage drinking. We had some beers together and he was like, oh, you got to come down and do some house shows, which is my style. I really like, the I like small doing the house intimate, shows here. Yeah. And, and I was like, oh man, I, I would love to do that. Bit the bullet on the ticket and uh, went down there, but made friends with the band. And now this is five years later recording this album with them. Um, with this EP that's kind of the beginning we're going to work on a, a full length together and I'll yeah. continue to go down there but uh, were you surprised that, that fans in South Africa have, have taken to you? Uh, I think uh, I, I've done a tour in New Zealand as well and I I think those distant places are always stoked that there is someone coming at all right um, and so I, it, it's really uh, heartwarming I guess just to be like supported just for coming and at that point uh the rest, like playing the music and playing well, I think that comes really naturally when you already have the support of, of people. So You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News, and joining me is Stealth Olvang of the Lumineers. You've recently put out another EP called Take Time, which you recorded on your iPhone in hotel rooms while on tour. I want to hear some of this music. Uh, this song is called Deja Vu. Well, I got out the car, I got out the map of the mountain. Soggy and wet like a coin at the edge of a fountain We gave up counting stars when we got to the edge of a thousand Spinning on over me, under me, over me, under me, over, all over again And we break down away, shake the river down, down to the muddy water Muddy water, break away, 
this sounds pretty high quality to be recorded <laughs> in a hotel room on an iPhone. How did that work? GarageBand is incredible. You basically have um, the ver- most limited recording software on, on a cell phone, and it only does a few things. But uh, with that, I think, comes more creativity from me to try to figure out ways to tie it all in. And I have basically one guitar, and then there's little t- tones that you can play on the four-inch keyboard on the on the cell phone. And uh, I have so much fun with it and tried to re-record almost all these songs that are on this, this EP. Yeah. And everyone told me, you should just stick to the versions you did on your cell phone. They have, like, you know, the most uh, intimacy and life in them. And, and, and you're going to release this on, on cassette tape. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that that's rolling it back there. I thought... <laughs> I don't know why I thought it was a funny idea, which is a terrible business move, but it's still making me laugh to make a, you know, high quality, uh, the most hi-fi new form of recording and then put it out on cassette. Um, I mean, don't you think the quality is going to be sacrificed a little bit? People are like, that's an amazing quality. I think the cassette is then a little forgiving for me still learning how to mix and everything. That was kind of my thinking, so... We're just a quarter of the way through 2018, and you've got a third record you're putting out tomorrow. It's called American Boredom. Yes. And it came together over the course of three years. Yeah. You seem to work really quickly. Typically, why did this one take so long? Uh, th- this, I-, I think I was putting a little more. These were all the songs that I've been developing for a, a lot longer of time. And uh, coming in Denver on and off through Lumineers tour, we'd be out for two months, and then I'd have a chance three days in Denver that I could uh, meet up with all these musicians. It's kind of putting down the pad of paper and the music and doing the Lumineers stuff and picking it up. when Exactly. It's a lot of the same musicians I used to play with in my band Dovekins. There's members of Paper Bird are in there and uh, it's just the same community. Getting them all in a studio for a day isn't too hard if you have three months to plan it and then just make it happen for a few days and then I'd be gone for another year and we'd make it happen again a year later. So it did take a while, but I'm glad it's finally finally coming to fruition. Do you prefer to spend more time on, on these albums or kind of put them out rather quickly? Uh, I think I'm more of a, a first thought, best thought, the uh, you know the Kerouac style, a little Denver native-ish. And, <laughs> uh, but yeah, just I like putting it out as it comes and then maybe forgetting about it. So this one has made me a little more anxious because I've had so many feelings about a lot of these songs. You had to sit with it for a while longer. Yes. I'm a terrible editor. And uh, so I'm, I'm. this one took a lot of editing and I'm excited to put it out tomorrow. But here's... Uh, fingers here's crossed. You're crossing like your it. fingers right yes. now in studio. <laughs> Anyone who's seen you perform knows you do so barefoot. Yes. Are there any musical advantages to doing that at all? Uh, I like... Now that I play guitar a lot, I like playing with the pedals a bit. I have guitar pedals and it makes it a lot easier. I get... Uh, nimble toes going and um, but with piano I like it's just the feeling of being grounded and having having the foot pedals there and I, I really like that although maybe you can tell that I'm I'm just getting over a cold now and everyone tells me hey maybe just try wearing socks or something so. <laughs> keep keep your feet warm <laughs> I mean I, I mean are your feet holding up I mean, I mean I could imagine pushing the pedals just must be a little bit difficult there when you don't have anything protecting yeah them. I, no I've been told by a, a foot doctor that basically my, my feet are are like trained karate masters where they they are slowly <laughs> calcifying and becoming harder like I've been I could probably kick through a cinder block let's just We'll try it out. We'll try that next time you come in. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Stealth Wolfgang's new album is American Boredom. He performs tonight at the New Belgian Brewery in Fort Collins and tomorrow night at Syntax Physic Opera in Denver. And you can hear Ulvang and his band play in our performance studio at noon tomorrow on CPR's Open Air. I should mention I played all the instruments on this. Oh, did you? (laughs) Oh, all right. All him. (laughs) 